The Art Newspaper Podcast is brought to you in association with Bonhams, auctioneers since 1793. With expertise in more than 60 categories of collecting, its specialists will connect you with your passion. Find what defines you at bonhams.com. Hello and welcome to the Art Newspaper Podcast. I'm Ben Luke. This week we're discussing the art behind one of the greatest albums of all time, the eponymous 1968 album by the Beatles, which is 50 years old almost to the day. But of course, hardly anyone calls it the Beatles, and the reason they don't is due to its revolutionary cover, designed by the British artist Richard Hamilton. This week, our initial focus is the White Album. The White Album was the follow-up to Sgt Pepper, the 1967 album that Kenneth Tynan, a critic at the Times in London, described as a decisive moment in the history of Western civilization. No pressure then. And the designer of the cover had an equally formidable task in following up the unforgettable collage by Peter Blake and Jan Howarth that adorned the cover of Sgt Pepper. Hamilton's response was to do a blank white cover but there's a lot more to it than that. Later, I'll be speaking to the writer Harriet Viner about Robert Fraser, the art dealer who linked the art and music worlds in the 60s. But first, I went to Tate Britain to talk to Andrew Wilson, senior curator of modern and contemporary art at the Tate and also the author of an essay in the new super deluxe edition of the White Album. We spoke about Hamilton and how he approached this momentous task. Andrew, first off, who was Richard Hamilton? Richard Hamilton's probably one of the more significant pop artists in this country at the time in the in the 60s but actually he was kind of like the uncle of pop art um didn't he define pop art essentially in a sense he did um through through his work with the independent group at the institute of contemporary arts in london in the in the early 50s mid 50s defines pop art you know as something popular and ephemeral but he didn't really define pop art he defined popular culture as a subject matter for 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 an artist for an artist's work very much at a time when subject matter was quite hierarchical the sense of fine art and popular culture popular culture being quite derided and marginalized ignored by artists as a subject the everyday and he and some of his contemporaries took a very very different view and it was very much about thinking about culture you know using a, say the term that the, the critic Lawrence Alloway coined of a long front of culture so everything existed on a continuum fine art and all aspects of popular culture and, and the everyday all on the same level and that you wouldn't really apply a sense of aesthetic judgment to any of these uh, categories along that continuum you'd rather apply a sort of critical judgment it was about what things meant and what they did rather than in a sense how they made you feel perhaps at this stage as well there's a really crucial connection with this emerging phenomenon which is conceptual art Mm -hmm. i mean two years earlier hamilton had reconstructed duchamp's large glass for an exhibition here in this building at the tate gallery and that seems to me a fairly crucial thing that conceptual art was becoming very a very significant development in 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 art yeah i mean it, it is and i think conceptual art's often quite misunderstood as somehow being apart from art and actually conceptual art was about making that connection 
with the everyday that art had a closeness to life and that closeness was something again that needed to be critically examined and Duchamp was a really key figure in all of that because in a sense his nomination of certain objects as a ready-made is about engaging with the everyday in a way you know and engaging with the unesthetic as well was really really important which brings us very neatly onto a very unesthetic album cover or yeah. is it um the white album um can you can you tell me what hamilton's idea was for this record well i think in a in a sense the way that the story is often told it's it's it, it's a design concept almost born out of fear. You know, the, the, the previous album for the Beatles, 1967, Sgt. Pepper, it had an album cover and a design concept that was formed very much by Peter Blake and Jan Howarth and for many people defines the Beatles, you know, in, in a maybe retro-nostalgic kind of vein, but very much of that period... 1967, Summer of Love, and this was the album and the album cover that defined that. And so uh, when Paul McCartney first approached Richard Hamilton to do this, uh, I think his, his first response was, well, I can't top what, what Peter and Jan have done. You know, it's, it's like it's, you can't go beyond that. I can't, what can I do? And then thinking, well, do the complete minimum. Do the complete opposite, but also apparently the complete minimum. And let's do something really outrageous, which is to cover the album, provide a jacket for the album, which is just white. Um, you know, it is the most absurd thing imaginable, uh, you know, when you first start to think about it. The, the biggest band in, in the world at that time, the Beatles, should have their new album, you know, a double album. It's the first album to be released by their own label, Apple, um, should be uh, just in white. And there's no distinguishing mark effectively at all. He toyed with minor distinguishing marks, didn't he? There were other, there were other ideas than just a pure white cover initially. One was... Um, and I'm not sure if it was exactly Paul or Richard who, who came up with the idea of maybe putting a, a, a coffee mug and a coffee mug stain on the cover. Or another was to bounce an apple. So you get that sort of pulpy, apple kind of creamy, greeny, white skid on the cover. But I think very quickly it was just seen, you know, those sorts of ideas were on, and, you know, might connect to Dieter Roth as well, who's a friend of, of Richard's. And his chocolate-stained letters. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> it's all connected. Um, but, but I think those, those sorts of ideas become a bit trite, a little bit hackneyed, and also, you know, might look good if you were just doing it, but then having to reproduce it many millions of times you know it's, it, I think it would end up looking not as good as the idea but I, the main uh, the main the, the main defining mark that's, that's on the white, white album sleeve is, was the idea to 
number to p- apply a serial number, a sort of ticker number. So, as it's being printed, it would be the last thing that the the the, the sheets of cardboard would go through. A numbering system that would number it up to well, I, nobody quite knows how many millions. That's right. There were was. ten presses all over the world that yeah. were producing, each beginning with one, by yeah. all accounts. Yeah, but, uh, that's one account. Yeah, right. <laughs> The myths of Beatles, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> but um, but th- but this this is a really crucial aspect, isn't it? I mean, this idea that Hamilton had, which he said he it was a it, in a sense it was a joke about designing an album cover that was going to be, be reproduced millions of times that would have a number on it like a yeah. tiny poetry press. Yeah, I mean, I think it really does connect to that sense of um, exclusivity, um, high aesthetic pretension. But at the same time, this sense of real individuality as well and a sort of personal connection to something. So the number both defines the reach, in a sense, um, of the Beatles. You know, they are the biggest band, they have the biggest fan base around the world. And the number, in a sense, is a reflection of that, you know, many millions. And so it's huge. And if you buy an, a copy of the album at the time in November 68 you'd take this home with you and you'd see this large number but at the same time it would be, the number you had would be utterly personal to you on one of that band Essentially you were owning an original artwork, this was the, the, the brilliant conceit of Hamilton's that you were, you were actually owning, because if we're talking about a conceptual idea, that is the work yeah. And you have a numbered version of this work. Yeah. For sure. And it, I think that is, was very much key to his thinking with, 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 with this, um, if you like, design concept. It was a conceptual work. It was an artwork. Um, he, 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 as an artist, as did numbers of his contemporaries, you know, they, they, they engaged with popular culture as a subject. But here... Richard's engaging with popular culture both as a subject but as popular culture this is one of those it's a one of those rare crossover moments where art actually acts as popular culture the album's actually called the Beatles yeah which was also Richard's idea but I can't think of many other records where the real title that people hold to them is, is actually a description of the design of the cover for the album. What we're standing in front of now is a print that Hamilton made much later, actually in 2007, which is simply called Beatles. But it is that original artwork that he did for the poster in the White yeah. House. Yeah, it is drawn from the original artwork, the collage that was produced to produce the poster in an edition of Many Millions. Um, he then after refinding the collage thought that it was it offered an opportunity to him to produce and produce a poster as he originally intended it because obviously you know if you produce something that's going to be printed in an edition of many millions of printing presses set around the world, they're going to be compromises and you lose a sense of control over the finish of the poster. And so in 2007, he resolved to do it in an an edition of 80 as a fine art print. You know, 
ordinarily the poster that came with the White Album the fan would maybe look at it, peruse it while listening to the music look at the pictures turn it over read the lyrics to each song, you know, and it's part of the experience of listening to the to, to, to the music it wouldn't be put behind a mat in a frame and hang in a gallery necessarily it might be pinned to the wall it might be blue tacked to the wall but that's also a different kind of context I mean one of the really striking things standing in front of it now is how beautiful this print is actually and how incredibly faithfully it reproduces the kind of edges of all these different elements of the collage so it feels almost like a relief print yep. mm-hmm. Can you describe what we're, some of the things we're looking at? Okay, so we're, we're, yeah, we're looking at the poster, the print of the poster, and it shows images of the Beatles. Images that are not just from the late 60s, from the time of the White Album. Some of them go way back to Hamburg, um, so the really early days of the Beatles. But there are very few individual images of the Beatles together as a group you know you've got to imagine that this is actually folded you know yes. we're looking at something that's unfolded here and originally it would have been folded it would have been folded centrally and also horizontally twice yes. to create in a sense nine separate images and i think richard in conceiving the design for the for the poster for the collage was very much thinking about the experience of taking it out of the sleeve and thinking about how one would cumulatively unfold the poster and so the image would be seen first as in, you know, the first image you'd see would be an image of a top left of the poster, which is an image of Paul with his head in a bath with soapy water around him imagine lots of young Beatles fans hearts fluttering at that image and then next to that is a very kind of blue it's a blue light image of John Lennon singing into a microphone maybe taken off a TV screen you know so you've got these different kinds of images Um, they're quite um, private secret but also some of them are of the Beatles performing and so you see through as you unfold images of the band as individuals come together as 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 the group and you know this Richard didn't make this poster having listened to the album you know it was being recorded at the time it was being mixed it was being he hadn't really his 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 um, approach to this was very much as I've described, trying to create a new kind of image of the world's most popular band, you know, to do something that is so against what the music company would ordinarily, their publicity office would necessarily have done. There's lots of lovely anecdotes about this. One of them is that Paul McCartney spent a week with Hamilton in his Highgate studio. Mm Mm-hmm sort of over, not overseeing this process but watching this process and it sounds like from what from McCartney's descriptions that it, he was quite rapt he was he was in slightly in awe of Hamilton's um, image making abilities yeah 
No, I, th- I think that um, you know Paul was of of the four Beatles, the one who was the most involved in the design project. It was him that organised it with Robert Fraser, and it was him that organised going to the Beatles to get to source all these photographs um, that. Um, formed the basis of, of the collage and he was very 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 involved he he owned work by by Hamilton um, he knew knew Robert Fraser he'd been he'd helped hang um, I think the last exhibition of, of that Hamilton had at, at Robert Fraser's gallery so he was very entranced by the art world and you know Robert Fraser for him was a very important figure sort of opening his eyes to certain kinds of art just as um, Miles and, and John Dunbar of Indica Gallery were op- had been opening Paul McCartney's eyes also you know sort of to the avant-garde scene as it were now I'd like to return to the to the cover again and, and one last detail which is the embossed lettering of, which spells out the Beatles I've heard differing reports about it mm-hmm. Some say Hamilton wasn't involved, uh, that it was actually McCartney's idea, but also others that say that, that Hamilton was directly involved and it was him that sort of skewed it at that odd angle. Mm. What's your understanding of it? My understanding is rather different to, to, to that. I think initially Hamilton hadn't seen it. You know, he hadn't, he'd missed that element of... of what happened to his design because certainly he was interviewed not long before he died uh, and he quite clearly states that that wasn't by him and he almost saw it as an act of vandalism against the purity of the design concept that he'd had for the album that wouldn't reveal the identity of what was uh, inside the white covers um, but it's kind of interesting as well. For if, if one unpicks that, it's like, well, who did put that on? And I think it was probably the music company um, wanting a sense of um, identification. You know, it's like you can't, you know, sense, sense of, you know, this is the biggest band in the world and yet there's nothing, no indication whatsoever that it's the Beatles. We've got to have that. It is the title of the band. Of the band and the the record, and it has to be there on somewhere on the on the album cover. And working with Hamilton, sort of almost as as it were the in between person between Hamilton and the record company was the artist Gordon House, who had worked also with with Peter Blake and Jan Howarth on certain aspects of the of the Sergeant Pepper album cover. Um, sorting out some of the typo- typographical design. And I have a feeling that Gordon House is probably charged with the job of adding an identification to the cover that wouldn't um, disrupt the purity of Richard's... Um, design concept which you know is, is it's it's a little bit sad if that is the case but because what that also identifies is the degree to which 
the music company had a certain kind of control. If that, if my 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 projection on that is 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 true, because one of the glorious things for Richard working on this project was that, frankly, he could get away with anything. You know, and the, you know the idea of having the white out the white cover is very much part and parcel of that. You know. Ordinarily, it'd be it'd be an idea that would be laughed out of court by by the money men, the business people behind behind it all. But in this instance, you know, the Beatles were bigger than the business people. They're bigger than the money men. Well, it's a fascinating story, Andrew. Thanks so much for telling us about it. That's right. Thank you, Ben. You can see Beatles, the Richard Hamilton print based on the White Album poster, in the display 60 years at Tate Britain until the spring next year. And the White Album's available now in various formats, including the Super Deluxe Edition with Andrew Wilson's essay through Apple Corps. Now, Andrew mentioned the art dealer Robert Fraser's important role in connecting the Beatles to the art world. Indeed, Paul McCartney described Fraser as one of the most influential people in the London 60s scene. Harriet Viner is the writer of Groovy Bob, a biography of Fraser, and I'm delighted that she joins me now to discuss him. Harriet, reading your book, it's an oral history, and so you get these different voices weaving in and around each other, and it's very clear that lots of them are rock musicians and lots of the others are artists and art dealers and other people in the art world. He, uh, this, there's this really intriguing thing about Robert Fraser that he really did straddle those two worlds, didn't he? Well, he straddled quite a few worlds in a way, because although it's called Groovy Bob, that's slightly ironic because he had still very many ties to this sort of old world of going to Eton, you know, all that sort of behaving badly in the sort of posh way. And in fact, Mick Jagger said that when he met Robert, he reminded him of those sort of John Deakin photographs, sort of old school. So in a way, he never was quite as groovy as all the rest, but he did absolutely have a foot in that camp and he was very, very influential. So... um he was only 25 when he opened his gallery in Duke Street, which seems an extraordinarily young age to enter into an art world. It does now seem very young. Yes, I agree. I mean, to people like John Dunbar, who ran Indica, um, Robert always seemed like a bit of a grown-up because he'd done national service and he had a bit of a, you know, he was a bit austere despite all the drug-taking. But he was very young and he's he was always, you know, passionate about art from a very young age. And um, Cedric Price, the you know, wonderful architect, designed the interior. And um, he said himself that most of the galleries around that area at the time were very dowdy, and the only people who bought art were the sort of toffs with money. And so it was all sporting pictures and, you know, um, that sort of thing. Very, very enracing, you know, very, very dull. So for Robert to open this gallery with a Dubuffet show, it was extraordinary um, at the time for a private gallery um, to do that. I noticed in the reports, I think you include one in the book, that, that they call him a graffiti artist, Dubuffet. And there's this sense in which, uh, even though Dubuffet's been around and modern art has been thriving elsewhere in Europe and America, there's still sort of corners of Britain that haven't been at all touched by this, and, and Robert was instrumental in bringing it to London. Um, no, the English always have been very ignorant about modern art, and they were then. And um, Brian Robertson had put on marvellous shows at the Whitechapel. Um, and there'd been, you know, the Hanover Gallery was fantastic as well. But, the, but Roberts, it was very rare to find a cutting-edge cutting edge, um, modern art gallery at that time. Did he have a conviction about contemporary art right from the start of his, of his 
interest in art? Was he looking at new art right from the start? Absolutely. Robert always loved it. He had a complete faith in his own eye, which is right. He was right to do because he had a brilliant eye. And he loved showing new artists and um, promoting them, which was Richard Hamilton was one. Of, I mean, he wasn't he was known. He'd had a few exhibitions at the Hanover Gallery, for example. But Robert really, as he said himself, Robert really, you know, raised his profile. And despite many financial irregularities, um, you know, made made him as famous as he was, you know, as he became. And that, that, that's an interesting thing, isn't it? Because clearly he was an excellent gallerist from the point of view of putting on shows and attracting artists and, and actually making those artists feel very welcome in the gallery. But the the business side of it was disastrous. Disastrous. I mean, it, it was disastrous from the start because I don't think Robert was remotely interested in that side of things. And also when he became druggy, of course, it came, became even worse. I mean, very... Uh, haphazard indeed and many of the artists including Eduardo Parlozzi got you know said to me when I was doing the book they refused to talk about Robert because they were just still so furious which seems a bit odd 30 years later but anyway. There's all these sort of anecdotes about about checks appearing without not being signed or not appearing at all and all that side of things and I suppose he was a wealthy man who perhaps didn't have a sense that actually a check was quite important to artists who were by no means rich in the way that we think of some young artists today. I know that's exactly what Bridget Riley said you know she, he had no idea that they needed to pay the rent or the gas bill um, and he'd turn up in a chauffeur-driven limo, so to speak, and, um, you know, explained to them for hours how he couldn't afford to pay them this month. Um, It was very, very infuriating for them and disheartening. But on the other hand, the gallery was so exciting. And, you know, it it almost made up for it, really. I think it did make up for it, but still very annoying for them. He was also very internationally focused, wasn't he? Because there were, you know, Warhol, for instance, and Ed Ruscher and others had shows with Robert when they weren't showing elsewhere in London. Oh, God, no. I mean, the the Los Angeles Now show was extraordinary. Everyone remembers that because, you know, these artists from California had not been seen before and hadn't been shown, hadn't been thought of in England, Ed Ruscher and all those, you know, it, it was very... And Dennis Hopper had his own rather mad presence in the show um so no it was, it was very very bold and exciting and how did the Beatles and the Stones come into contact with Robert then well I remember Christopher Gibbs um his great friend um saying that in 1965 Robert's life turned or interest turned from faggy to druggy and it was about 1965 that there was suddenly these presence on the scene of um rather wild well, probably not as wild as Robert, but, you know, the Rolling Stones and the Beatles. There was, you know, they suddenly were having money and they had influence and they were very, very glamorous and exciting. But so was Robert and his gang very much. So they learned a lot from him and um, and they make no bones about it. They made, you know, Paul McCartney particularly. And well, no, all of them, but Paul McCartney, you know, loved art and had a lot to do with Robert and his gallery and... and um, consider Robert one of his greatest friends. There's a really nice quote from Paul in your book in which he says that he was sort of an outsider who'd sort of drop into the gallery and they and then it was clearly noted that he was doing it and started to receive invitations to previews and then sort of became at the heart of that scene, at the heart of the art scene as well as the rock scene as it were. Exactly so. You know, he was just as they you know, they all had interest in modern art, you know, being young and they they were that way inclined. And yes, he probably did drop in a few times. And this is before he was really famous. So you know, he could do that. And then meeting Robert, who loved music too, it was a sort of 
complete friendship. Um, and as I say, Paul McCartney always says, he does say he's one of the greatest influences of that time. And, um, you know, he was a really great friend throughout Robert's life. M- McCartney had a collection. So did he buy works from Robert? Yes, he bought um, he bought the Magritte Apple, which became the basis for you know, Apple, the Apple logo. One of the things that sort of, uh, that, it, that myth has propelled into our current age is that McCartney was something of a, of a, of a square compared to particularly Lennon, who's perceived as very avant-garde, partly through his association with Yoko. But certainly from your book, it's very clear that McCartney was very interested in avant-garde ideas and very much a participant in an avant-garde scene in the 60s. Oh, Paul McCartney was very much involved. I mean, he had a lot to do with Indica, which was very, very way out, more so than Roberts. And I mean, Roberts was more serious in a way. But um, no, he was, very, you know, and, and the whole, you know, cover design for the White Album was was really to do with Hamilton and Paul McCartney. Um, John Lennon strangely had much of a say in that. No, that's right, because I think because um, Yoko and John were dressed in white and perceived in this kind of world of whiteness, uh, it's, a, it's, more, it's, uh, it's, it's almost seen like they were the sort of influential figures in that album, but it's very clear that it's McCartney and Hamilton. Well, Richard Hamilton himself says that, um, it's, you know, the legend has it that it was, it was inspired by Yoko Ono, and in fact Yoko Ono believes that, but that's not the case. <laughs> so tell me about this, the, the other this perhaps darker side of the relationship between Robert and, and the Beatles, which is, which is the drugs. Uh, in the book, it's very clear that, that Robert introduced the Beatles to, the, to cocaine, for instance. Yes, I'm sure he did. But if he hadn't, somebody else would have done. I, I, I never really pay, you know, pay much mind to that. But, um, yeah, if you discover a new lovely thing, which is cocaine or heroin, you might well, and before the days it was really known how dangerous it was you might well say god try this so i'm sure that happened but you know that always happens that way doesn't it <laughs> and 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 fraser was actually part of the famous redlands bust which happens uh, in 1967 and of course that moment has been enshrined in one of the great artworks of the period which is richard hamilton's swinging london which is actually on display at tate britain right now so people should go and see it there it's it's a picture of Fraser and Mick Jagger in a car, handcuffed together, isn't it? Yes, in a police car going to court. And he did about six variations, I think, and then, um, you know, the final one. And it's an extraordinary work because somehow it seems very melancholy. At the same time, it's glamorous. And it, like all sort of mysterious works of art, it seems to say more than just, you know... The initial when you initially see it, you see these two in the car, but it seems to have a very dark undertone and as I say, melancholy, like these you know wild and groovy times weren't here to last, and of course they weren't. And that's an interesting point, isn't it? Because it seems to me I mean, there are all sorts of moments where people talk about the turning point from swinging London into the sort of more complicated later sixties, perhaps. But it does seem to me that that certainly for Robert that was a, a turning point, and in many ways for lots of other people in, in in that scene, because it was a bit of a shock. It seems. Well, it was a bit of a shock that the establishment seemed to come down so strongly on them. I mean, for uh, really. It, I don't know, nowadays it seems, you know, pertinent again, really. You know, the idea that these people seem threatening to the establishment um, is, you know, it seems so depressing and to be handcuffed. I mean, handcuffed, they, 
you know, it's extraordinary. This, you know, these young people who literally had hardly done anything, just to sh- show, teach them a lesson. And of course, the sentence was appalling, really. I mean, and so it did. You thought it seemed so sort of marvelous to us the cultural explosion in the sixties. And it's funny now to think, you know. The old guard did not see it that way. Even now, you think, why wouldn't you love it? But of course they didn't. Hamilton, of course, called it swinging London, partly as a sort of pun on swinging London, but also because swinging was the exact word used by the judge in sentencing. Yes, he said, um, I can't remember the exact words, but he said, um, this deserves a swinging sentence. (laughs) Um, let's, Let's talk about happier things again. I'm really intrigued by Robert Fraser's visual sense because it's very clear not only in his choice of artists but in terms of his involvement with these album covers that he was an art director especially when it comes to Sgt Pepper Absolutely, I mean in those days again I mean the cover wasn't sort of it was hardly considered, you know, nowadays, again, you get famous artists doing covers, that's quite usual, but, um, and they weren't particularly famous, um, Jan Howarth and Peter Blake, but um, Robert suggested them, because the Beatles wanted to use The Fool, which was a Dutch sort of collective, you know, sort of groovy hippie artist, but he kept saying, they're no good, they're no good, use Peter Blake and Jan Howarth, and so they did, thank God, and and in a way, that, that cover so much sort of, is so perfect for the contents, I mean, it so sort of sums up um, the sort of mad, crazy sort of brilliance of the contents of Sergeant Pepper. And um, and Robert, you know, was often there on set looking extremely stoned. Um, but, uh, you know, nowadays he probably would have been called the art director, um, you know, because he had very much... He, he probably didn't say very much, but the thing about Robert is you got inspiration from his energy. I know that sounds a bit soppy, but that's what many people said in words to that effect. And Jan Howarth was one of those who said that. Um, and she was one of the designers for the... For, I mean, she was one of the creators of the cover. Let's talk about Robert's later life, because the gallery closed not long after that period, did it? So it's in the late 60s that it's really finally closed. 69 it closed, yeah. And then he... And then he, he resurrected it later and and amazingly to my mind showed Basquiat and Herring in the early 80s but it it was much more short-lived the second time yes partly because he was he he was drinking a lot and um you know that obviously doesn't help but mostly because um you know at a certain point he got AIDS and um and so you know he started to feel more and more ill but and also it's slightly depressing then it was a very much more depressing time in England um Nobody was interested in these mad graffiti artists and, um, you know, I mean, the sales were absolutely non-existent, I should think, and which is a pity for everyone that they didn't buy them. But, you know, that and so it was a slightly sort of, you know, to come back into the into that time after at least in the 60s, however much he was taking drugs and everything, you know, there was this feeling of things changing, things, you know, things are possible. But it didn't really feel that way in the, at the time of the second gallery, even though he was showing beautiful exhibitions well he's a fascinating figure and the book is an absolutely riveting read harriet thank you very much for coming in and joining us thank you very much that was great talking about it groovy bob the life and times of robert fraser by harriet viner is available through henny books price 10 pounds and an exhibition robert fraser's groovy arts club band is at gazelli art house in london from the 11th of january to the 23rd of february 2019 We'll be back and turning our attention to art in the Middle East after this. 
In her autobiography, the artist Yayoi Kusama writes of the disturbing hallucinogenic visions she experienced as a child in rural Japan, where her view of the landscape and the people within it was clouded by spots. Later, when she graduated from art school, the spot became integral to her work and was a key element in the Breakthrough Infinity Net series she completed on arrival in New York in the late 50s. On her return to Japan in the 70s, she revisited this hypnotic and mesmerising signature style. A particularly good example from this period, Infinity Net 1959, with its cadmium yellow dots that are engulfed in a black net, will be offered at Bonham's post-war and contemporary art sale in Hong Kong on the 26th of November. To find out more, visit bonhams.com. Welcome back. On 11th of November, exactly one year after the opening of the neighbouring Louvre Abu Dhabi, art crowds gathered in Dubai in the UAE for the opening of the new Jamil Arts Centre. The art newspaper's Amy Dawson went to the opening and spoke to Antonia Carver, the director of the Saudi non-profit organisation Art Jamil that has launched the centre. Amy began by asking Antonia what Art Jamil is. So Art Jamil is a foundation that supports artists and creative communities. For many years, we've worked both in Saudi Arabia, regionally, we have uh, art schools in Jeddah and Cairo, and we have a number of international partnerships. Uh, we're probably best known for uh, collaborating with the V&A on the Jamil uh, Gallery itself, and also the Jamil Prize, which has been running for 10 years now and awarding artists globally who are inspired by Islamic art and design. Um, here for the first time, we have our own institution. Uh, Jamil Art Centre, which is just opening now in Dubai, and we're tremendously excited to be doing this. And can you tell me, so this is the first dedicated space uh, for Art Jamil. Um, why did you decide Dubai and say not in Saudi Arabia? Mm. Well, we actually are building a centre in, in Saudi, in Jeddah. It's called High Creative Hub. And it's a 17,000 square metre development. So it's taking a little longer than, than our centre here, which has moved remarkably quickly and ended up opening before the one in Saudi. Uh, we tried to, we were always wanting to have uh, one domestic institution in Saudi and one international institution. In Saudi, uh, in Jeddah, the centre there, the, we're calling it this uh, creative hub, is really looking very broadly at multidisciplinary practices. So there, there's a cinema, a theatre, comedy club, commercial galleries, um, restaurants, uh, cafes, co-working spaces, as well as our own arts centre. And this was very what, much what's needed in, in the city of Jeddah, which has a really kind of diverse and very active creative community and really looking for a space where we can bring all those disciplines together. Here in Dubai, we thought about Dubai as a city and really kind of figured out that this is where we can have the greatest impact. Mm. Uh, Dubai has a hugely international uh, population living here and obviously transiting, coming through the whole time. And we wanted to tap into those tourists, you know, 20 million tourists a year come to Dubai. And uh, we feel that a lot of them might be looking for some kind of cultural input and a center that really addresses the region as a whole. Mm. And even more importantly, thinking about the local scene uh, Dubai obviously is the market centre, home to the biggest fair in the region. Uh, it's where all the galleries have, have congregated, particularly in Al-Sakal Avenue. And it has great artist studios and this incredibly kind of engaged public, yet no contemporary art museum. So here is a particular opportunity to really have an impact both locally and internationally and to build on what's already here, but provide something completely new that fills a certain gap. Mm. And um, for the opening programme here, there's, there's quite a lot of uh, gallery space. 
Um, and you've got four solo presentations of artists, like artist rooms, mm. and also this uh, group show, which is called Crude, and it's about oil. Can you tell me a little bit about how that group show came about? Mm. So uh, we were, I was in conversation with the curator of the show, Murtaza Vali, who's a friend of Art Jamil and uh, part of our curatorial council, so very much involved in our kind of thinking. And we were trying to think of a show that's really prompts a debate that's very discursive, that really talks about something that's very pertinent to this region. Mm. And I mean, you can't get something more pertinent than oil. Absolutely. It obviously flows through every aspect of life, not only here in the Gulf, but obviously globally. And, uh, you know, in Murtaza's words, it's something that's completely hidden in plain sight. Oil is everywhere, yet we hardly talk about it. And a number of artists from this region and also Latin America and other parts of the world have been exploring the kind of themes that oil throws up, including looking at, at archives, at, um, at kind of ideas to do with economy and society, architecture. And we very much wanted to look at this theme kind of from the ground up to take a perspective from the Gulf and specifically from the UAE to address this, this subject. So here um, we're obviously an oil producer as well as an oil consumer. Oil uh, transformed societies. Um, it enabled many Gulf countries to, you know, move out of poverty and out of a dependence on uh, the pearl industry and fishery, fishing and a, a sort of pastoral life into one of hypermodernity. So it completely transformed generations of, of uh, residents' lives here and citizens. Um, and artists have a particular perspective on that from this part of the world. It's uh, both critical and occasionally celebratory. And we felt that artists were able to kind of address this complex theme in a way like no other. You know, they can mm -hmm. ask all the questions that it's difficult to ask. Uh, the exhibition explores so many incredibly complex themes, and yet in a way that's visually arresting and it can be, and it can be entered into on so many different levels. And um, so let's talk about the um, artist rooms. So that they are effectively solo presentations um, and you've chosen four female artists. Can you talk about who they are and why they were chosen? When I first read about it, it came to my head that maybe it had something to do with the fact that um, in Saudi Arabia, women are getting increasing numbers of rights within the country um, and there's a big focus on, um, mm. on women. And I wondered if that had anything to do with the choice. Actually, kind of by, you know, organically and sort of by default, we settled on three artists from the region. Maha Maloukh, who's a Saudi artist. Uh, we have a lot of her work in the collection. We've collected her for a very long time. She's a real kind of pioneer. Uh, she works uh, a lot with kind of throwaway um, domestic uh, kind of objects and goods. And perhaps the sort of pièce de résistance in her... Um, Exhibition is this wall of 400 cooking pots of all different sizes, shapes they look and incredible. sizes. They're, They're incredible. walk in, you, it just yeah. jumps straight out at you. It's just an incredible Completely. And each one has its kind of, you know, because we see obviously the bottom of the pot that's been scarred and burnt by many years of mm. making meals. Some of these pots are enormous. They would have fed a huge extended family of like 25, 30 people. Yeah. You can imagine like, you know, biryanis and stews sort of, you know, bubbling away in them. Yeah. And um, she's, you know, talking a lot about this kind of transformation in Saudi society from being a very communal society to being maybe a little bit more individualistic, mm -hmm. um, the arrival of kind of consumerism. But she does everything with a slightly kind of wry smile. 
Um, and she's somebody that's been very influential on, on other generations of artists in Saudi. And then we have in the next uh, solo presentation, we call the Artist Rooms, these kind of capsule solo shows. We have Munira Osor, who's an artist who's uh, half Lebanese, half Syrian. Uh, she works, again, these are all the, most of the works in that sh uh, show are from our collection. She's working a lot with telling stories of refugees who've been, who've come from Syria into Lebanon. As we probably you know, know, one in three people in Beirut at the moment is a refugee from Syria, um, which puts into perspective um, maybe the number of refugees that are arriving in other places in, in Europe and the weight that Lebanon is taking. And she looks at, she gets them to tell her her stories. She sketches them as they tell the stories, and then she creates embroideries out of these stories. Our third artist room is dedicated to works by Lala Rukh, the great Pakistani artist and women's uh, activist, women's rights activist, who passed away last year and who found international fame very late in her life. She was very much celebrated as one of the key artists in the last documenta. But before that, was primarily known within South Asia as an incredibly influential figure. And we wanted to pay tribute to her with three different bodies of work uh, spanning a 22-year period. And Gallery 10 on our very top floor is a work by uh, a new uh, commission by Shiharu Shiota, the Japanese artist. And for this, um, we knew that Shiharu Shiota liked working with boats. She liked exploring themes of, of a kind of connectivity between people fundamental issues of human life and this kind of idea of the maritime and so it felt perfect to you know to commission her because one of our main themes right here you know on the Dubai Creek is looking at this idea of confluence and connectivity and she's just created an incredible immersive room where she takes over the entire room with 2,500 balls of red wool <laughs> has created this kind of vast spider's web or a cocoon which wraps around a traditional uh, wooden Emirati Dow boat, which we um, got from the boatyard just upstream from us. That's great. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Now, the Lebanese-Syrian artist Munira Al-Sol is part of the inaugural programme at the Jamil Art Centre and also has a solo show at the Mataf Arab Museum of Modern Art in Doha, Qatar, a neighbouring country that's currently under embargo by the UAE, Saudi Arabia and several other countries in the region. Amy met Munira in Dubai and asked her about one of her works on show in the Jamil Art Centre. So I go back to in uh, 2011 when the revolution started in Syria and then slowly it turned into a war. And at that time I was pregnant myself and it was really very tough because the revolution in Syria started with children who spread something like freedom or, you know... Yeah, on spray paint. Yeah. yeah, on the wall of their school and then they were arrested and then... You know, it, it became like a snowball and uh, people went down uh, and it became like a huge revolution um, and then turned into a, a war and, and so on. So, so it wasn't easy to be there and to be making a child yourself and then, I mean, watching over a few hours away in Syria how things were... Um, unfolding. Or because you were in Beirut at the time? I was in Beirut and I myself have Syrian, so uh, yeah. my mom is from Damascus. So it was very hard to be in Beirut and to witness 
the people coming over escaping. So for me, it was important to engage also to make the people feel welcome to Lebanon. Mm. And so, and I also, in the beginning, there was a lot of hope with this revolution. So I wanted to, uh, you know, because in the civil war, I was a kid, so I wasn't able to record anything that has happened. Mm. And you really now understand that that gap is has created uh, amnesia because the younger generation they don't know what we've been through in that civil war they have no idea so there's nothing to keep the people aware and remember what has happened to their parents grandparents and so on um, so to me it was very important then to meet the people and just like intuitively I was drawing them and it's in a way I was recording our conversations. So for me, it's really about that act of sitting together, inviting them to my studio, sitting together, making a drawing, writing down our stories. And um, often I would ask the person to choose their favorite drawing and then they keep it. So there's also that exchange. Um, and later, I've been making a lot of those drawings and things have been changing and... Uh, uh, I've been also moving. I'm not able anymore to live in Lebanon these days, so I moved to the Netherlands again where I studied art and so on, um, even though I come and go very often. but uh, And I've also started to draw people as I've been uh, going also uh, to Europe and being based there again. So I've also witnessed that movement of everyone moving upwards to Europe um, um, so then the idea came after I made a sequence of a number of those drawings. A lot of people I talk to, they, uh, for me, I associate what we've said with colors, I associate with places, I start to imagine, uh, you know, colors of sand or colors of uh, dreams or even elements of the stories they told me. And then even I would meet two brothers, one in Lebanon or the father is in Morocco, the two children are in, in Lebanon, the other two are I don't know where. So the idea came that, oh, I could then draw them next to each other and then sew them back on one uh, textile, you know. And I also always worked with textiles. So, And then sewing is also kind of something that connects but at the same time it's a very you know it's a harsh medium at the same time you know if you sew into a paper you destroy it at the same time which is really interesting and and I love to do that so the first ones I did I had drawn on paper and I was uh, sewing the paper on the textile at the same time sewing in the paper so it's also making, but also destroying, because the paper gets really destroyed underneath and then disappears. Um, but then slowly, I, uh, I, I wanted to do more and more of those. And it was a time, actually, I also applied for a, for a grant from uh, Jamil. And that enabled me to be able to employ or, you know, work with, uh, to say decently, uh, women who 
are uh, skilled with embroidery. Mm-hmm. And, and that was a great uh, moment for me because not only I was embroidering myself when I was ready, when I knew what the embroidery needed, uh, I had drawn all the elements, put them in the right place, and then I would invite uh, women whom I had met through drawing mm-hmm. or through a girl I drew. She'd tell me, oh, my mom is a great embroiderer. And you know what? These women, they all came, a lot of them had come recently from uh, Syria. Uh, but also I worked with uh, women who have been here for years. And I've also worked with women who live far away, are Lebanese and are, are like uh, crazy about embroidering. And they're really, really good. Yeah. So, But all these women have one thing in common, that they uh, take the burden of the family expenses on their shoulders mm-hmm. because the man is when you're on exile most of the times the man you know cannot find a job anymore and then the woman starts to bring in the income to the house so um through that i was able to work with more women and then invite them over to my studio or go to their houses sometimes i bring my family with me my daughter and we'd be sitting there with their kids as well I would be embroidering together to finish a work, you know. And I think for me that is one of the most uh, interesting moments of the work because it generates that contact and um, then it's just uh, really interesting also on a woman level because when we sit like that and work like that, we tend to... Like tell stories, tell before. stories, yeah. and you know, very intimate. Yeah, yeah. and uh, so all of these women, the Syrians, the Palestinians, the Lebanese, they all have amazing, really strong stories mm-hmm. to say, actually, and so a lot of them have really suffered. But also the Lebanese, from the man, from how things go. I mean, uh, but when you sit together and you embroider, it's a moment of joy, and we you feel empowered mm. so that I think it's really important uh, for while working on that uh. I also wanted to ask you so you have a solo show on at the moment also at Matav um, Museum in Doha yeah. um, can you tell me a little bit about the show and how the show came about there Yeah. so the Doha exhibition um, the Matav uh, came to Chicago to see my show and they've seen my works in Athens and in uh, Castle for Documenta but also I think they've been interested in my work for a while and then they saw those uh, exhibitions then they saw the Chicago one which was uh, curated by Henrik Folkerts and I was really uh, you know honored to be in the Chicago Institute, Art Institute. It's really, it's like a Louvre in the USA. Yeah. It has an amazing collection and they have a modern wings uh, part. Mm-hmm. So it was really an amazing uh, exhibition there. So the Matthaf team saw it there and then they said, okay, we want to travel that exhibition to Qatar. 
So it's kind of the same exhibition, of course, on a different scale, yeah. and also in dialogue with other artists. So I'm very honored to be near uh, Fatah al-Mudarris, who's one of the major Syrian painters, uh, who's being shown because they have his works in their collections, uh, and also because they have a focus, as I understand, on Syria this year. And uh, so at the same time, Abdullah Karoum, the director of the museum, has curated a show called Revolution Generation. Uh, so at the same time, there is an exhibition of uh, Egyptian artists, uh, Syrian artists, Moroccans uh, from all generations, who uh, and Lebanese and Iranians and so on, um, who, if you want, you can, you know, it's an exhibition called Revolution Generation, so you might uh, imagine what's yeah. there. <laughs> <laughs> what was your experience when you were in Qatar and in Doha? Obviously, there's a, a, a difficult pol political situation at the moment in the Gulf in terms of Qatar is um, currently under boycott from a number of countries, including Saudi Arabia and the UAE. Um, what did you find the art scene was like when you were there? First of all, uh, when you go there, you really um, you really notice how that embargo is bringing people together, mm -hmm. and it's also making a bonding between the people there. So I think that is really sometimes, unfortunately, nations need such a harsh thing to understand and you know um, be able to understand the strength of being us now here. Mm -hmm. But it's really harsh because a lot of families are mixed. I mean, it's like Lebanese Syrians, Lebanese uh, Jordanians, Jordanians, I don't know, to cut people out like this, like a piece of cake again, like mm -hmm. the colonial pe people did this to us and now we are doing this to each other. I mean, it's really, really harsh and unacceptable. Mm -hmm. You have families who are half Bahrainis, are half Saudis, Children are being born where they have to go to Saudi to re re renew their passports. So, I mean, it's really unacceptable, I think, um, in the that sense. The art scene there is kind of thriving, you think? And of course, everything is seen from that angle on. And I think for them, it's very important to achieve things beyond those borders. Mm -hmm. And I understand. Yeah. <laughs> But, um, so every country has its political agenda and things that you don't understand and are not revealed and and I don't think any country is innocent of anything no, of <laughs> from all those regions <laughs> so but um, if you want the Madhav and the artists who work with Madhav but the collection of Madhav is really important they have uh, like artists such as Nji Aflaton which is from Egypt They have, and she's really, you know, a, a very important artist. Uh, they have like Etel Adnan's work there. They have Mona Hatoum. Uh, they have Shirin Nashat from Iran. Um, it's a really international, well, it, it has this Middle East focus, but it has such an incredible yeah, but collection of artists. From of the course, region. from the region. And you notice when you're there and here also that this part of the world is really. 
it's really very interesting in all those connections. And it is, it was a port. It is a port, you know, a harbor where things come in and things get mixed. Mm. Uh, in cities with harbors, you always have that chance of mixture and opening up. Mm. So, um, Usually, unless there's an embargo, of course, then it's much harder. <laughs> But hopefully, it's yeah, a, it will come. Yeah, I mean, there are wars everywhere today, so I don't know. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for talking to me. The Jamil Arts Centre is now open to the public and Munira Al Sol's artist room at the centre is on view until the 9th of February. Her show, I Strongly Believe in Our Right to be Frivolous, is at Mataf in Doha until the 16th of February. And that's all for this week. If you haven't already, do subscribe to the podcast and let us know what you think on Twitter, where you can follow us at Tan Audio. That's at T-A-N Audio. Our main Twitter account and Facebook are at The Art Newspaper and you can find us on Instagram at theartnewspaper.official. And you can subscribe to the print edition of the art newspaper. If you do so before the 10th of December, you'll receive the year ahead, our guide to exhibitions, fairs and biennials worldwide in 2019 with your first copy. Subscribe at theartnewspaper.com. Thanks to Andrew and Harriet, to Amy, Antonia and Munira, and to you for listening. See you next week. The Art Newspaper podcast is brought to you in association with Bonhams. Find what defines you at bonhams.com.